I'm Dale Mason, publisher of Answers Magazine, and this is Creation Answers, a podcast of Answers in Genesis, featuring highlights from the award-winning Answers Magazine. This episode explores one of the least understood places on Earth, caves. Even in the darkest places, the Creator's light shines brightly. Evolutionists are finally beginning to recognize that these wonders must have been carved quickly, not over millions of years. In the first article, Mike Matthews shares what he learned from one of the world's leading cave experts, Dr. Emil Silvestru. Many caves have been carved in just hours. Caves. The word evokes different responses. Fear, fascination, indifference, wonder. These dark retreats are the stuff of legend and monster movies, a den of thieves or hideout of outlaws. Not just Jesse James, but troublemakers in the Bible. See Job chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Some think of caves as fun side trips on a vacation, and they are. But something else draws cave explorers and scientists. The mysterious origin of these holes of the earth, Job's memorable expression for caves. All our lives, we've heard that caves formed slowly, over tens of thousands of years, as surface water seeps into the earth. But recent discoveries are turning old assumptions upside down. The real story may be much more dramatic, as rising acidic waters cut vast caverns in as little as hours. How different from the traditional story. The old story was based on the slow processes that scientists observe in caves today, and they projected these slow processes into the distant, unobserved past. It never crossed their minds to consider what might happen if God sent a one-time judgment on the earth during Noah's day, which created conditions unlike anything we see today. Such a global catastrophe would unleash unprecedented tectonic forces that would tear apart the earth and stack miles of fresh water-filled sediments. Water trapped in all those heavy sediments was squeezed out and forced upward. These waters became acidic and dissolved caves as they rose. The process by which the old way of thinking was transformed, from belief in slow processes to catastrophe, is almost as interesting as the findings themselves. These ideas weren't formulated in Western Europe or the United States, but in the anti-God, communist Soviet bloc. Among the leading cave experts who advocate this new view of catastrophic cave formation is a Christian and a biblical creationist named Emile Silvestru. But he wasn't a believer when he first learned about this Bible-affirming view. In fact, he was an atheist, working for the world's first institute for studying caves, located in communist Romania. He learned about catastrophic cave formation there, not in the West. How God works is truly a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, a young discipline. Initially, the study of caves was driven by curiosity, as spelunkers squeezed through thousands of miles of untouched paths under the earth, trying to discern their full extent. It was mostly a Western hobby, performed by amateur explorers and thrill-seekers in the 1800s and early 1900s. Russia and Eastern Europe, struggling under grinding autocratic oppression, didn't always have the same freedom to make caving a hobby. Serious study of caves did not take off until the early 1900s, led by enterprising scientists who began exploring the geology of those cave-rich mountainous regions. The first institute of speleology, the study of caves, was founded in Romania 
the haunts of Count Dracula, in 1920, geologists began reporting some interesting finds, which indicated a few caves may have arisen by hot water rising from deep within the earth. But because of the language barriers and restrictions on information sharing behind the Iron Curtain, scientists in the West barely heard of these ideas. A researcher at the forefront of this study was the Ukrainian Alexander Klimchuk, but his work didn't get the ear of many Western geologists until a visit to the U.S. in 2006 to 2007, after which he published a book summarizing the startling research so far on this type of cave formation. He called this view hypogene speleogenesis, Latin for below-the-surface cave formation. The traditional view is known as epigenic, above-the-surface speleogenesis. Now armed with advanced new tools for studying the Earth's interior, geologists are finding massive new cavities deep in the Earth, which have never been exposed to the surface. Indeed, these cavities are widespread, and they exist in many types of rock, not just the limestones traditionally associated with caves. Some caves on our planet are very deep, sometimes hundreds of feet below the present water table. They present a problem for conventional top-down views of cave formation. The problem is that no surface water could reasonably flow down this far and continually flow until it removed all the material. So geologists were willing to accept that a few rare cases must involve bottom-up processes of rising acidic waters. Klimchuk, however, made a convincing argument that these sorts of caves are common, and he showed photos and collected papers to support the argument that catastrophic, deep processes have cut caves in many kinds of rocks. The same basic process seems to work, no matter what the type of rock. His book explains why geologists have so often overlooked the clues to this bottom-up explanation. Most caves that were studied are near the surface and are being reshaped by water from above, so this recent influence has obscured evidence of earlier activity from below. The term cave, after all, technically means an underground cavity that has been lucky enough to have enough surface material eroded so that it is exposed to surface invaders. Understandably, this chance access to caves gave us a skewed view of what has really taken place in the holes we can't see and that haven't been disturbed by surface water and air. Klimchuk's views were earth-shaking, but he didn't go so far as to claim that the vast majority of caves formed this way. That is just too radical. It would take creative thinking by creationists who are used to turning secular assumptions upside down to extend these conclusions to cavities worldwide. A tale of two caves, Carlsbad and Mammoth. Miners have long known that some caves were formed by acidic solutions rising from deep in the earth. Even in ancient times, they would find copper and other valuable ores deposited by these solutions, and they could reach them through these caves. But these types of caves were thought to be rare. Carlsbad formed by sulfuric acid. A landmark paper in 1987 argued that one of the most famous caves in the world, Carlsbad Caverns, formed rapidly by ascending sulfuric acid. Indeed, the acid could have carved caverns the size of football stadiums in a matter of hours. If you've ever done experiments in a chemistry class, you know how fast lemon juice can eat chalk. Just put a piece in a dish, pour some juice on top, and see what happens. Sulfuric acid is much more caustic and dangerous. Although it's not quite the same, this is a good reminder that unusual conditions 
like enormous volumes of acidic water rising through limestone, can do amazing things in a short time. Geologists in the U.S. are slowly coming on board with this perspective. Emil cites the example of a sign in the big room of Carlsbad Caverns, one of the world's largest cave chambers. The visitor's sign originally said the room was at least 260 million years old, but it was changed in 1988 to read 7 to 10 million years, later 2 million years, and now it's gone. Geologists have located the nearby and lower sulfur deposits where rising hot water would have flowed through, transformed into sulfuric acid, and then eaten the nearby caverns as it continued to rise, perhaps with the help of bacteria that also love to eat rock. Emil spent years studying mining caves in Romania, which he believes were formed by rising acidic water. He referred to it as hydrothermal formation, which means it came from rising acidic hot water. Emil's old report, cited in Klimchuk's recent book, goes into detail, describing the evidence that sulfuric acid from sulfide deposits formed these caves. It even describes stalactites, draperies, and other cave features made of sulfide, not typical limestone. Emil eventually became a Christian and a creationist. It became obvious to me that the things I was studying could not come into being by mere chance. He also realized the profound role of assumptions when interpreting geologic history. If the assumptions about past conditions are wrong, then the conclusions will be wrong too. In a 2003 science paper, published before Klimchuk's book, Emil argued that his decades of field research had convinced him that all of the Earth's main cave systems were formed by rising waters, not dripping water. But few secular geologists pay attention to papers presented at creation science conferences. What about standard caves, like Mammoth Cave? Even though Klimchuk and other secular geologists now advocate hypogenic cave formation, they're not willing to go as far as Emil. They still don't believe that typical caves, such as Mammoth Cave in the Cumberland Plateau of southern Kentucky, were formed from catastrophic bottom-up processes. The problem is that they often must rely on the work of past geologists who weren't looking for or reporting evidences because they didn't expect to find them there. The research is complicated by the fact that the newer effects from surface water can often bury or erode the evidence of the earlier bottom-up processes. Those processes occurred deep in the earth before erosion exposed the cavities to the outside world. Emil has done hands-on research in hundreds of caves, but nobody can visit all the thousands of caves on the planet. Yet everywhere he has looked, the findings are consistent with his claims. Other creation geologists have come on board to help, doing their own studies in nearby caves, and they're finding the same thing. One of these active researchers is Kurt Wise, professor at Truett McConnell University. The school is conveniently located in the Cumberland Plateau, where a maze of thousands of caverns weaves through Tennessee and Kentucky. A geology paper presented at a creation conference in 2009 summarizes what he found at Grassy Cove Saltpeter Cave. It lists 14 specific kinds of evidences, like those described by Klimchuk, that support the theory that rising hot water cut the cave system. Even a non-geologist can understand most of these evidences. These underground rivers were flowing upward, so they caused erosion, including water channels, on the ceiling. Creation geologists are only beginning to study caves looking for these features. 
Answers Magazine may be sponsoring a trip to Mammoth Cave very soon, just for this purpose. Keep your eyes peeled. But what about all those stalactites? Okay, so the evidence seems convincing that catastrophic processes cut these holes from the bottom up. But what about other famous features inside caves, which we see in travel brochures? Those stalactites, columns, and draperies, together called flowstone. Rock of Ages in Carlsbad, for example, is a column around 30 feet tall, and similar features in other caves rise nearly 100 feet. If they were formed by water dripping from above, surely this took hundreds of thousands of years. Based on today's slow rate of buildup, a few centimeters per year at best under the wettest conditions, the global flood changes how we look at the origin of cave features, just as it changes how we look at holes in the earth. Heavy rains started when the fountains of the Great Deep opened, and this must have been associated with rising magma and massive plate movement. A catastrophe like this would produce the wettest and warmest period in Earth history. Models indicate that such warm oceans would have generated more heavy rainfall for decades after the flood. The mineral-rich waters that saturated the planet would have been an ideal breeding ground for cave features, which could have grown at a speed unlike anything we could imagine today. When creation geologists look at cave features with this biblical catastrophe in mind, they notice patterns that their secular colleagues miss because they didn't know to look for them. In my experience, more than 99% of cave passages lack these speleotheme, cave formations, like stalactites, Wise explains. And in the caves where they're most abundant, near the entrance, which was exposed to the surface only recently, they fill less than 1% of the area. You might get a different impression from commercial caves because they advertise the places most likely to draw visitors. It's easy to explain the limited number of cave formations if they formed from dripping water above after the hole itself was cut by rising acid from below. No flowstone can form while the void is deep in the earth because it would be full of water. Flowstone requires air, so flowstone could begin forming only after the cave appeared and the water drained out, and then it grows only in the rare parts where surface water is flowing from above. This explains why the vast percentage of passages are empty. Only a small percentage has been exposed to the air, and it's only been for a few thousand years. In contrast, if the cave formed from seeping surface water, cave features should fill many passages. It takes so long to cut rock with dripping water that you would expect features in nearly all cave passages. So the rarity of flowstone is evidence that caves formed bottom-up and that they are young, not old. Right-side-up thinking. The rate of water flow, not time, is the primary factor in the growth of cave features. Just like cutting the caves, assumptions play a huge role in adding features such as stalactites. If we start in the right place, we're more likely to end in the right place. With the Bible's history of the earth as our starting point, we know that caves appeared recently, and these formations developed rapidly. Given the catastrophic changes introduced by the one-time flood, the existence of vast caves and impressive features is a testament to rapid processes no longer occurring today. Indeed, it turns out that the evidence is forcing even secular scientists who have no biblical axe to grind, to conclude that rapid processes have been at work. Truly, God's truth 
turns the mystery of the enigma of geologic processes, such as caves, upside down. The name of that article is Caves, Underground and Upside Down. Isn't that an exciting confirmation of the Bible? A catastrophic flood in Noah's day changed the earth, not just on the surface, but underneath as well. Buddy Davis loves exploring caves. His exploration of the amazing Cumberland Caverns was recorded in the DVD special Extreme Caving. Your kids will love following Buddy's trek inside the cave, his original songs, and the always encouraging humor of this inspiring adventurer. Order Buddy Davis Extreme Caving at AnswersBookstore.com. Buddy Davis Extreme Caving, AnswersBookstore.com. The first article focused on the rapid formation of vast caverns under the earth. The next article looks at the rapid formation of stalactites and other beautiful formations inside these caverns. It was written by Buddy Davis, one of my colleagues at Answers in Genesis. His long list of talents includes an adventurer and explorer. He's visited many caves and talks about some of the most beautiful treasures that he's found. With the help of a creation geologist, Andrew Snelling, he explains how they formed rapidly. Some folks like to call it spelunking. The British call it potholing. But I simply call it caving. And I love it. The world is filled with spectacular, easy-to-access caves that draw millions of eager visitors each year. Like the Big Room at Carlsbad or the endless passages at Mammoth Cave. But visiting one of these caves isn't the same as caving. Caving means getting dirty, squeezing through holes, or rappelling down cliffs to reach secluded spots that aren't accessible by concrete steps and handrails. By veering off the beaten path and carrying the right equipment, we can enjoy treasures seldom seen. As a believer and an adventurer, I expect evidence of the Creator everywhere I look. Job observed, Speak to the earth, and it will teach you that the hand of the Lord has done this. Job chapter 12, verses 8 through 9. Every cave needle, every gypsum flower, speaks of God's awesome handiwork. Extreme Caving at Cumberland Caverns I recently had the opportunity to explore Cumberland Caverns in Tennessee while filming Extreme Caving. It turned out to be just that. We crawled on our stomachs through tight passages too low for us to get on our knees. The next thing we knew, the passage would open up into rooms over 50 feet, 15 meters high, with some of the most spectacular formations I've ever seen. To get to the rooms, we had to scramble over fields of slippery rocks and boulders, called breakdown. Breakdown happens after water, which originally filled the deep cave, drains away. Without water pressure to hold the rocks in place, they begin falling to form a field of rocks. At times, I felt like I was traveling to the center of the earth. Our guide, Robbie Black, told us at one point that we were more than two miles, three kilometers, inside the mountain, and the surface was more than 400 feet 122 meters overhead. Few people have ever seen some parts we experienced. 
We even filmed portions never before captured on video. And that's saying something, since this cave was the location for a sci-fi thriller, What Waits Below. What forces carved these wonders? As I struggled through these twists and turns, I had to wonder what massive forces laid down these rock layers and then dissolved them away. Billions of tons of rock, all gone. The ceiling at the Hall of the Mountain King, for instance, rises 140 feet, 43 meters, and extends 600 feet, 180 meters. That's almost enough space to host two American football games at once. Evolutionists have long said caves required hundreds of thousands or even millions of years to form as water slowly dripped through the system. Secular guidebooks still say an underwater stream helped carve out the Cumberland Caverns. A small stream currently flows into the cave, forming a 60-foot, 18-meter underground waterfall in the waterfall room. But secular geologists are beginning to suspect catastrophic events, unlike anything we see today. My friend and colleague, geologist Dr. Andrew Snelling, explained that Noah's flood deposited the soft limestone layers. That explains why we see billions of fossil shells and other sea creatures in the cave ceilings. Dr. Snelling also says most caverns were probably carved at the end of and sometime after the flood. The continents remained saturated for a while until the water drained back into the oceans. Rather than slowly dripping water from above, recent discoveries indicate that warm, highly acidic water flowing rapidly upward from well below the water table carved many caves virtually overnight. So this took place several thousand years ago and explains why the breakdown, fields of crumbled boulders, is no longer fresh. It has been stable for years. Drip, drip. After the cavities formed, they were soon filled with new wonders. As we made our way through several passages, the walls and ceilings were decorated with hundreds of stalactites and stalagmites. They are formed by calcite carried by water through fractures and pores in the rocks. When the water evaporates, it leaves behind the milky minerals. In time, many stalactites and stalagmites grow together, forming columns. Some were over 30 feet, 9 meters high, and 60 feet, 18 meters, in circumference. So how'd they have time to form after the flood? We know from experiments that they can form quickly, in just tens or hundreds of years. They have been measured growing up to an inch a year. The rate depends on the amount of water and minerals that seep into the cave. Since the rock layers were still saturated at the end of the flood, with lots of chemically saturated waters flowing quickly through fractures and pores, formations could grow rapidly, much faster than one inch per year. It doesn't take millions of years. Delicate Wonders, Recently Formed and Preserved The caves are full of delicate wonders. The Crystal Palace looked like an ice cave, with gypsum and quartz sparkling like a winter wonderland. Such beauty comes as a complete shock after you've been inching your way through pitch-black passageways. 
I'll never forget the gypsum flowers in one passage. They are formed by calcium sulfate. You would think you were actually looking at a real flower. Cumberland Caverns has one of the best displays of gypsum flowers in the U.S. Another amazing formation was the cave needles. They look like grass. Some grow two feet, or 0.7 meters long. Their weight causes many to break off from the walls and ceilings, making a carpet of fragile needles on the cave floor. What's most interesting to me, as a creationist, is that these gems are so delicate that few people are allowed to visit. How do such delicacies survive if the earth is old and always changing? Just plain fun. Our adventures took us to a place with a formation called Cave Bacon. It really looked the part, but was translucent. You could shine a light and see through it. I had fun tasting the cave bacon, but I wouldn't recommend it for breakfast. Our crew also found fine hair growing on ledges and rocks. You could gently blow and watch it move. It is another fascinating form of gypsum. As we entered another room, our headlamps lit up a wonder called popcorn. This is caused by water pressure squeezing through blocked pores in the rocks. Many other amazing formations awaited in Cumberland Caverns, including soda straws, drapes, curtains, and gypsum crust, which resembles white sand. All give testimony to the Creator's continuing love and wisdom, as He quickly refilled the earth with new wonders after the flood. That article by my friend Buddy Davis is appropriately titled Caves, the Greatest Show Under Earth. The next article by another regular writer for Answers Magazine looks at the unique designs of animals living in caves. Yet again, scientists are learning that the evidence points to the designer, not to random evolution. He's as blind as a... cavefish? Move over, bat. A new idiom is in town, and it's changing the way many people think about evolution and creation. Meet the cavefish. Cavefish is a generic term for the 170 or so species of freshwater fish, usually less than 6 inches, or 15 centimeters long, that we find in caves. In areas where rivers flow in and out of caves, researchers have found an interesting fact about some of these fish, sometimes called blind cave tetras. The fish that live inside the caves are nearly identical to those outside the caves, and the ones that swim in your own aquarium, except the fish living in the cave are lighter colored and have smaller or no eyes. But this isn't a problem for the cave fish. In fact, it's a benefit. A highly developed visual system can use up to 15% of an animal's energy. That's a high percentage for creatures that live in the dark where food is scarce and they need to focus their limited energy on finding it. So, instead of seeing, the fish rely on an amazing sense of smell and sensitivity to changes in water pressure. They don't miss the skin colors either. Surface fish need their color for camouflage or identification. But again, it takes energy to produce chemicals that make and maintain the color. 
Evolutionists have traditionally touted this as regressive evolution, a helpful reduction of no longer needed traits over time. Recent discoveries have been eye-opening. Something more complicated and designed seems to be happening. It appears that the Creator placed within fish the potential for variations, so they could change quickly to thrive in new and changing environments and fill the earth with representatives of His glorious wisdom and provision. So instead of regressing, the cave fish is a marvelous example of extremely sophisticated, multi-layered design. And we know that designs need a master designer. The details are amazing. Waddington's Widget, an idea worth watching. Decades ago, biologist Conrad Waddington proposed the radical idea that creatures have some sort of mechanism that allows them to retain variations in their genes without revealing those variations until the right conditions are met. Under the right conditions, Waddington surmised that the very same mechanism might, within several generations, cause their offspring to be born with those stored variations. This unconventional idea met sharp resistance because it was so contrary to standard evolutionary thinking. But now, researchers have discovered just such a mechanism, a protein called HSP90, in the blind cavefish of Mexico. The fish already had the information for eye reduction in their genes, but HSP90 normally prevents this eye reduction. But HSP90 is turned off and the eyes are reduced under special environmental conditions. Those conditions include subtle factors, such as the electricity that water conducts, which is much lower in caves because the water has less salt. Even before they're born, embryos have detectors that sense outside conditions and, thanks to HSP90, change their bodies accordingly. Instead of the several generations Waddington initially proposed to create changes in offspring, the 2013 study of cavefish showed this blindness could happen in one generation. Much more than loss of eyes and color. Blind cavefish also display special behaviors that are more appropriate to life in darkness. For instance, rivers flow in and out of caves, so these fish have to swim against the current to stay in their caves, just as their open river cousins make special efforts to stay out of the caves. The fish instinctively know they'll find food and be safer against predators in their present environment. Both types of fish, which came from the same species, are designed for their varied lifestyles. Blind cave fish aren't worse off. Remember, the fish aren't blind because of information-destroying mutations. Their eye genes are all intact. But the environment changes which genetic instructions are used to build eyes. Their designs for caves include such details as shallow eye sockets that are scaled over, a nifty little adjustment that prevents damage to soft tissue if they bump into cave walls. And even more intriguing, if the blind cavefish are reintroduced to the water outside the cave, 
within a generation or so, offspring can again be born with fully functioning eyes. It's all a matter of your view. These findings flabbergasted many evolutionists because they weren't looking for them. On the other hand, these findings shouldn't really surprise creationists. We believe God, the ultimate all-knowing engineer, knew varied environments would develop after Noah's flood. He wanted creatures to fill these places, so he purposely designed such flexible genetics, even if it means a fish might be better off without eyes. God's attention to detail is staggering. And if God cares enough to program the small, blind cave fish for successful living, imagine how much he cares about the details in the lives of people who are made in his image. The same God who designed the cave fish has his eyes on you. That article, Designed to Go Blind, was written by Jeanette Littleton. Doesn't it make you wonder why people are so quick to believe in evolution? Friend, we should never doubt God's word. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these articles, there are hundreds more at our website, AnswersMagazine.com. The links to today's articles are listed in our show notes, and I encourage you to subscribe to receive the magazine in your mailbox every other month. You will love that you're better able to share and defend your faith. I'm Dale Mason, publisher at Answers Magazine, and for the entire team, God bless.